Welcome to Torah Simecha with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Rachel Baum, and today we will be learning Parshas Tezriah. So the end of Parshas Shemini and the entirety of Parshas Tezriah speak about laws regarding impurity and purity, Tuma and Tyra. Shemini ends with the laws of kosher and non-kosher animals, which ones are pure and impure to eat, which carcasses of animals a person shouldn't even touch in order to not become impure, the shratzim, those small little creatures which are impure to touch when dead and make a person impure if they actually eat on eat them. The concept of the item on which a dead animal is found, for example, wood, cloth, the water in certain vessels, those become impure. So it really speaks about the concept of purity and impurity from the standpoint of human consumption and touching things that may make a person impure. Tazria speaks about Tuma and Tahara, impurity and purity, caused to a woman through childbirth. And then the Parsha speaks about the extensive laws about impurity and purity surrounding the affliction of Tzara'as, which we know can show up on somebody's skin, um, on somebody's household, and on other certain items. So in order to better understand this Parsha, we really need to understand the general idea of what Tuma and Tahara, purity versus impurity, really are. Rafersh explains that anything impure, including being in a state of impurity, is really just the concept of a restraint of potential for spiritual growth. Anything tahar, anything pure, including being in a state of tahara, expands the potential for spiritual growth. So it's not necessarily good versus evil, but rather what is the potential for spiritual growth of a certain item, of a person during a certain time, And of course, the more potential for spiritual growth, the better. So of course, Tahara is a preferred state than Tuma. This is why a dead person personifies the height of impurity. A non-living human has expended all of his chances at spiritual growth. His soul is now reaping the reward of whatever spiritual growth he attained in this world. This is also why the laws of impurity surrounding a dead animal are less severe than a dead person. A dead animal never contained great potential for spiritual growth. True, it could have been used by a human, but it never in and of itself held great spiritual potential. Whereas a human, who contains the maximum amount of potential for spiritual growth when he's no longer living, represents the greatest fall in spiritual growth. Another example of the loss of potential for spiritual growth, and hence tuma, hence impurity, is the blood of a woman's menstrual cycle. So since the blood is a loss of what could have been human life, it represents the loss of, again, potential spiritual growth. And therefore, it renders a woman tame, it renders a woman impure. So explains Rav Hirsch that the laws at the end of Shmini are external sources of impurity, eating an impure animal or touching an impure carcass. However, the laws in Tazria, that of childbirth and saras, are internal sources of impurity. They come from within the body and therefore have more severe ramifications, including longer periods of tuma and certain carbonos that are needed for the person to bring in order to leave the state of tuma that he is in. So both the end of Shmini and the whole Parsha Tazria are speaking about halachos, laws regarding tuma and tahara, but Parsha Tazria, our Parsha, is really of a more severe form of tuma that of childbirth and sara'ats because it comes from internally and therefore affects a person in a stronger way. So let's discuss. The second pasuk in Tazria says, Daber el Yisrael lemar, isha ki Tazria v'yolda zachar, 
v'toma shivas yamim. Hashem tells Moshe to speak to the Jewish nation and say, when a woman at childbirth, meaning when a woman brings forth seed and she gives birth to a male, she gives birth to a boy, she shall be impure for seven days. Ubayom hashmini, the psukim continue, on the eighth day, yimol besar arlaso, then the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So for seven days after a boy is born, the woman is impure, and on the eighth day, she is no longer impure, and the baby boy gets a bris. We'll see that regarding a girl, it's not seven days, it's actually 14 days, and we'll discuss why. So the Torah is telling us that when a woman gives birth, the process of childbirth renders her impure, which from a technical halachic standpoint makes sense, because when it comes to the laws of nida, any opening of the rechem, the womb, that includes a flow of blood, renders a woman impure. However, on a deeper level, the question becomes... If restraining potential for spiritual growth renders one impure, so then why is a new mother who just created a human being, who just gave birth to a baby, which is the ultimate potential for spiritual growth, considered impure? If we're, right, if we're saying that impurity is something that restrains the potential for spiritual growth, but here she actually just created a human being which holds that potential. So why should she be tame after giving birth? So Chazal, our sages, explained that although she just created a human life, the fact that this human was connected to her and now has left her on some level represents the loss of life to her and therefore renders her impure. Meaning even though the baby still exists outside of the womb and now can actually attain spiritual growth, but on some level she lost a life. And so therefore she lost the life which represents the potential for spiritual growth. Therefore she is Tameh. Rav Hirsch explains differently as follows. He says, going back to the Pasuk, the original, the first, the second Pasuk in our Parsha, the verse tells us, Isha kisazria, which literally means when she brings forth seed. We know Zara literally refers to the seed of a plant, but throughout Torah, the Pesukim use it to mean our kids, our children, because just as plant seeds are the venue through which plants continue to exist, similarly, our kids are what propagate the human species, right? It's the way that the human species continues to exist, like the seeds of a plant. But first points out that the only other place in Torah where the word tazria is used in this exact diktok, in this exact grammatical way, is in Parshas Bereshis when the Torah describes the vegetation Hashem created on the third day of creation. And the Pasuk says, That the earth brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants of every kind. Meaning Hashem created plants that contained within them the seeds, meaning the ability for them to propagate themselves and continue their actual species. So explains Rav Hirsch that since the same exact lashon of Tazria is used here, it's showing that the process of the development of a human fetus from conception through childbirth is just as physical as the seeds of the plants. Once a human egg is fertilized, there is nothing the mother needs to do or really can do or can choose to do in order to make sure her baby develops, she is, cur- she is completely subjected to the very physical process of human development and human birth. Being completely dependent on the physical, with no room for free will or autonomy, explains Rav Hirsch, is another form of restraining spiritual growth. Because like we know, spiritual growth depends on Bechira. It depends on free will, on the freedom to choose what my actions are, what my words are, what I'm going to do. That is the whole concept of spiritual growth. Without Bechira, without actually choosing anything, I am not growing. Therefore, when a woman finishes the process of pregnancy and childbirth, she enters into a seven-day period for a boy and a 14-day period for a girl, 
in which she needs to reacclimate herself, as it were, to the potential for spiritual growth. Here she was going through this very physical process in which she really had no free will to make the baby do anything. And the baby just developed on its own through the physical process and was born on its own through a physical process. Now she has to reacclimate herself into the realm of of Tahara, into the realm of purity, which is the realm of spiritual growth in which she will make conscious decisions. And it's for this reason, explains Rav Hirsch, that childbirth makes a woman impure. Moreover, he explains, the reason why she needs the week slash two week period, right, depending on whether if it's a boy or a girl, to reacclimate herself, and she can't just jump right back into it once that baby is born, is because the source of impurity was such a part of her physical self, right? It was literally a part of her in her, in her womb, and therefore it was strengthened and imbued within her, and this concept of just being completely subjugated and subjected to this physical process took a a strong hold on her. Therefore, it takes a period of time for her to contemplate, to reacclimate. And then with the bringing of carbonos, she recommits herself, so to speak, to spiritual growth and becomes pure. So let's address the question, why is the period of impurity different for a boy and for a girl? So the Kliyakar actually explains that the source of the concept of Nida is really the sin of Adam and Chava, instigated by Chava like we know, and she was therefore cursed with the blood of Nida. And it was due to the sin, explains the Kliyakar, that man became more physical and less spiritual. Says the Kliyakar that the sin of Chava, meaning the sin of Adam and Chava, brought humankind under what he calls the Shiva Kochve Leches, right, the seven cycles of the stars, meaning the physical world of nature. It made us less spiritual and more physical, right? Generally speaking, we know that throughout Torah, seven represents nature, whereas eight represents above it, right? Any physical three-dimensional thing, right, has a width, height, and depth, each with a start and end point, right? That's six. And then the center point to which they all connect is number seven, and that makes something physical. So anything above that, a number eight, would be something that's not physical, would be something that's spiritual. For example, we have a week that's seven days, and then we would say, even though Shabbos is included in that, but Olam Haba is above that, right? You have seven musical notes, and Chazal say when Mashiach comes, there will be this eighth note, right? So therefore, says the Kliakar, for seven days, the woman kind of atones for the sin of Chava through that state of impurity, and then she becomes pure on the eighth day, representing the fact that it was the sin of Chava that brought us into the state of seven days, meaning the state of physicality. Therefore, we atone through a seven-day impure process. However, for a girl, not only does she need to atone for the sin of Chava, but since she just brought another reciprocal, so to speak, of impurity, meaning the girl who will eventually go through the same process and also bring a sense of Tuma of impurity into the world, she's impure for double the time. Seven to atone for the actual chet of Chava and Adam, and then seven for the fact that she just gave birth to a reciprocal that will eventually also become impure. However, if Hirsch takes the boy-girl difference on another track, he says as follows, that on the eighth day, along with the woman becoming pure, we know like the Pasuk tells us, the boy receives his brasmila. This is the first act that the father does to bring his child into the Jewish nation and into a Torah true education, right? In general, the father and the mother's way that they will educate their son will be very action-based, 
We know the concept of zachos, of being a male in general, represents the idea of action, striving, right? Like if you would picture it as like an upward arrow going up, the boy will keep mitzvos, he will learn Torah, he will soon wear tzitzis. There's a lot of directions what he's going to have to do, what he can and cannot do. When it comes to a girl, although of course we teach, we instruct, and as females we're required to actually do, but the whole concept of the nekeva, of the female, is the idea of receiving, of being a mekabel, of being in a state of being, of being a reciprocal of good and giving it to others through that state of being. So therefore, for seven days, when it comes to a boy, the mother is required to contemplate the important role she and her husband now have in raising their son. And in a way, the strategy is easier, it's more direct. They're going to teach, they're going to instruct, he's going to do, he's going to learn, he's going to follow mitzvot. And on the eighth day, they actually do something. They'll give him a bris, and it's all action from there on out. But for the daughter, says Rev Hirsch, our chinuch strategy may be more subtle. So it's for 14 days that the mother is required to think and strategize. How will I teach my daughter? What message will I send her through the concept of nakvas, the concept of being a feminine, of being a makabel, a reciprocal for good, of being in a state of, basic, of, of, of being? What will my actions be? What will my words be? Am I ready to be the role model she needs to lead a Torah way of life? And it's for this reason, says Refresh, that a woman waits two weeks before committing herself back into the world of spiritual growth. And we know the famous Pasuk says, Shema b'ni musar avicha v'al titosh Torah right? That we need both the musar of our father, and we also need the Torah of our mother. That there's two different ways to teach, and there's two different ways to learn, right? There's that direct instruction, and then there's the more subtle lessons that we learn through osmosis. And it's through the process through which a woman becomes pure after giving birth to either a son or a daughter that we can learn that really each child is different. And based on gender, personality, strengths, and weaknesses, it's up to us to contemplate and to strategize the best way to help each of our kids reach their full potential. Thank you for learning with the OU Women's Initiative.